So how was the break? Fantastic. Fantastic? Yes. No? Ah, yeah, what were you doing? Yeah. It happened so quick. I was, uh, I went out to, Saturday I had a gleaning in, where were we at? I don't even remember. Towards, gosh, I've been to so many different places gleaning. Uh, it was somewhere towards Fuquay Verena, yeah, out in the country, out there. It went okay. We got 20,000 pounds, pretty good. And then, um, where else do we go? We got Saturday, Saturday night, had a family reunion. That turned out really well. I had a bunch of people there. There was probably about 45 people there. Got a great group shot. Sunday had the continuation of the family reunion. And then before you know it, we were at Monday and Tuesday, and then boom, we're back. So anybody do anything super exciting, fun, interesting, worth mentioning? No? I tried. How was it? Yeah. Yeah. So what? Yeah. My class yesterday, somebody showed up on Monday, I think, and they're like, where's everybody at? And I'm like, oh, fall break. So, Joker, um, do you have any concerns or commentary? Uh, I think his Joker set up Heath Ledger's Joker quite well. Like the transition over. A so, if you watch. He does make a lot of stuff that this Joker does make sense with Heath Ledger Joker. Yeah. To me, yeah. I think I need to do that. I need to watch the new one again and then watch Dark Knight, like right after that. And it goes, you know, because uh, I would love to see this turn into a trilogy where you have the next movie. It's 25 years later, and Bruce Wayne becomes Batman, and they meet. And then the third act, the Joker is captured, you know, whatever. So that would be great, but that's not going to happen, you know. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of money being thrown around. I mean, this movie is... I don't know if he'll do another one. He probably won't, but the money is very compelling. I mean, they're already over, like, $600 million worldwide, so... I couldn't help but laugh because I realized he was the, he was the guy that played... Black. He was the gladiator. He was the... Emperor. Yeah, that's, I'm like, wait, okay, yeah. I know who he is. yeah, yeah. What's that? The test. I fell asleep. Oh, okay. I said that doing like. Didn't you? Did you email me about that? Did we? No, you emailed about something else though. Okay. Yeah, I did watch a couple movies on break. I watched the new Breaking Bad, El Camino, on Netflix. Has anybody oh, seen that? Yes. My dad didn't like it. I thought it was pretty decent. I mean, it's really kind of. I don't know. I mean, there's you still have that intensity that you have in Breaking Bad because there's some sketchy things that happen in it. But I mean, I thought it was it could have been left out. I mean, they didn't have to do this movie, but I'm kind of glad that it went down and things happened the way they did. So it's worth watching if you're a Breaking Bad fan, definitely. Um, aside from that, though, didn't really watch anything remarkable worth worth mentioning. So um, anything else happened before we jump into chapter nine? Okay. Well, I'm going to get jump into chapter nine because we have a lot to cover, not a lot of time. We only have one day of lecture this week, and I think we can pretty much hit what I need to say with chapter nine. So chapter nine is about management, one of my favorite topics in intro to business because uh, I've done some management. And one of the things I like to talk about with management is how many like of you guys think, here think that most managers are bad managers? What do you think? Do you think most managers are bad managers or do you think most managers are good managers? What are you giving any opinions on this? It's a hit or miss. It's a hit or miss, yeah. Would you would you say it's okay, let's do it this way. You think it's fifty fifty? Half are good, half are bad? 
Yeah? Yeah, I see that. So, any commentary on this? Anybody have any opinions? So, what makes the good managers good and what makes the bad managers bad? Any opinions on that? Favoritism makes makes bad managers bad. What else? All right, let's, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it like by type. So, what makes bad managers bad? Favoritism is one of them. Micromanaging, hovering over you. Yeah. Oh, unprofessional talking about you behind your back. Yes. I've had it where I had managers come talk about other people behind their back, and then I'm thinking. What are they saying about me to that person? You know, it's like, ah, oh, so telling. Yeah. What else? Inconsistent. Yeah, that's a good one. Not leading by example. Not be leading by example. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, there's actually been a lot of studies into this to look at what attributes of management people like. One of the top three or five, I think it's top three, that comes out over and over again is empathy not being empathetic like i don't care about your life and your situation all i care about is my situation so you're here to do the work to make me look good and as long as you make me look good i don't care about your kids sick or you're sick or your grandma died or whatever it may be that's that's your problem you know so empathy is a big big thing with management so anything else before we move on to the next one think about it so what makes good managers good what are good attributes of management? Treating everybody, same way. Treating everybody fairly and justly, same way. The opposite of not having empathy is also being an empathetic manager, being able to see people beyond the parts of the machine, being able to relate to them as humans, being empathetic. That's a big management trait. What else? An active listener. Somebody that listens, absolutely. You should listen twice as much as you, as you speak. Or you have two ears, one mouth, two to one ratio, that means you should listen at least twice as much as you speak. Really, the higher up you go within an organization in life, you should even listen more than that. Hey, my friend, how are you? Um, so what else? What else makes uh, good managers good? What's that? Being involved. Being involved, yeah, absolutely. So being genuine, right? And so... There's a lot of attributes that go into making up good and bad managers. It's good to study both because if you know what makes bad managers bad and makes good managers good, you can kind of avoid those bad things and try to be a good manager. Why is it important to want to be a good manager in the first place? Why is that important? You're able to retain staff, right? You build trust. People like to work with people that they trust and they like. Customers watch how managers treat their employees. Absolutely, yeah. I've been to like restaurants and places before where the manager was a total jerk to the employees, and it was a big turnoff to me. I felt bad for the employees, you know. Um, I can't tell if this guy, uh, this guy's a good manager, but I don't know. Is it, okay, I'm just going to say it. Does anybody eat at IHOP on Berkeley? There's a manager there that's, that's a bald guy. It's tall. Do you know that guy? Yeah. Hey, I've, I've met him. I've spoke to him several times. And the last time I spoke to him, I said, I think you're a really good manager. I just want to let you know you're doing a good job. But at the same time, he's really firm with his employees. He doesn't put up with zero junk. Like, so I can't tell if he is like a good manager from their perspective. But from the outside looking in, he looks like a really on-point, sharp guy. I mean, what's your, has anybody had any interactions with this guy? Or do you know this guy, anybody, or no? Yeah. 
Yeah, what's have you had an interaction with them? Yeah, like me and my friends, we went over there and it was like ten of my friends, it was like right before they closed. So right. He was kinda of mad already and he was just like not having it with us. Like yeah. Right. That's what I can I can kind of see that because I did have one like unfavorable interaction with them. We we brought a I don't know if we had one or two kids with us at the time. Might have been three, but anyway, we needed a high chair, and so they sat us. But the manager didn't like the position of the high chair because it was blocking a walkway or something, and so he had this whole like thing and he made us move tables. And I was like, God, dude, chill out, man. You know, but. So, you know, there are these personality things, but, uh, you know, there's a Blake Mooton grid that we could look at at some point. I don't think it's in this part of the lecture, but it talks about this balance between getting things done and being very focused on uh, results or being focused on people and trying to find the balance between the two. And if I had to rate this gentleman, I would say he's very getting things done focused and somewhat focused on people, but more so getting the mission accomplished. So... All right, so from a standpoint of the lecture and from a standpoint of the text, managers, there's different levels of management and there's different management skills. So these different levels of management, traditionally speaking, there's this hierarchy structure that managers kind of fall into. And you've all seen this pyramid shape, right? Where you have generally like a CEO at the top or president, and then you have like VPs, and then you have divisional regional managers, and then you have store managers or, or you know front line, and then you have all the employees that fall under that at the bottom. And so that's kind of a traditional hierarchy structure of management. And this is the same thing, it's just kind of done in bubbles right here. You can draw a pyramid up here and have the same. And these different levels of management don't necessarily have to fall into these types of labels where you have, you know, CEO, VP, whatever. I mean, those labels are kind of arbitrary, and it's just however the organization wants to call you that. I mean, I saw this week where the guy who was running Marvel Studios, a guy named Kevin Feige, he's the guy responsible for all those 22 Marvel movies with, like, the Avengers and stuff. He just got promoted to CCO, Chief Creative Officer, which, I mean, to me, that doesn't mean anything. You know, it's like, okay, what does that mean? So, uh, but, I mean, I guess, I guess they created a position. They gave more responsibility, gave more money, I'm sure. So, I mean, you can cut it up and call people wherever you, wherever you want to call them as far as titles. And so, top-level management, the highest level, they set the organizational goals. They scan the external environment for opportunities, help develop long-range plans, so the examples they offer are chief executive, operations manager, or general manager. Yeah, and so uh, these are your top level managers who are generally responsible for, here's what we're gonna do, and here's how we think we should proceed with our company. The next level, the middle level, and by the way, this is all these notes, I'm glad you're taking notes, but um, I'm gonna move a little faster than normal day just for time purposes, but this lecture is available in your Moodle shell. Um, the middle manager, managers kind of take the plan and run with it. So imagine uh, using a football analogy. Anybody football fans in the room? Yeah, even if you're not a fan, I'm not a huge fan. I don't watch a lot of football, but um, you still get the, we'll get the analogy that the top-level managers would be like the coach. They're the person calling the plays. The mid-level managers would be like the quarterback. 
They know how to make the play happen on the field. This is what we're going to do. So they allocate the resources to achieve the goals and objectives set by the top managers or the coach. Oversee the front-line managers and report back to the top-level manager about the progress, problems, or needs of the first-line managers. Middle, ma- middle managers span the distance between the product, uh, production operations, and their organizational vision, and they identify and implement activities that will help the organization achieve its goals. So the QB on the field is kind of that mid-level manager. There's, they can communicate with the coach and say, okay, you got a plan. I'm taking the plan. I'm running with it. And if we're having issues, I can report back and let you know this is the issues that I'm seeing that we're having. And then the front-level management coordinates the activities that have been developed by the middle managers responsible for supervising non-managerial employees who are engaged in tasks and activities developed by middle managers. Think about your offensive and defensive coordinators, people that know what the plan is, and they communicate that plan and help organize that plan to various subordinates responsible for supervising non-managerial employees who are engaged in the tasks and activities developed by middle managers reports problem back to middle managers on the progress problems or needs of the non-managerial employees on the front line so to speak they are actively involved in the day-to-day operations of the business so frontline managers uh, from a business standpoint these are going to be your people on the ground these are your store managers your assistant managers people that are running the operation that can tell you how that vision and mission is being translated into actuality on the ground. And the thing that frustrated me when I was at Walmart is that you'd have these corporate level initiatives come out and their, their idea just doesn't translate real well sometimes in the real world. Um, like you've got people telling you how to run third shift when you've got, you know, 20 employees and, 20% of those or 25% of them are working on just the floors. The rest are stockers. You've got, you know, two to 4,000 pieces of freight you've got to move. And you've got people trying to tell you how to do the job that's never, ever ran a third shift. And they, they're just sitting in the home office thinking about logistics and stats and, and stuff like that and trying to explain to you how to run your store. And there is a disconnect there. And so uh, you run into some of those issues the, the bigger your company gets. So, management skills, the skills needed to succeed at each level of management vary somewhat. But there are certain skills common to all. Robert Katz identifies three critical skill sets successful managers, uh, I'm sorry, three critical skill sets for successful management professionals. Technical, conceptual, and human. Um, So, while these three broad skills categories encompass a wide spectrum of capabilities, each category represents a useful way to, of highlighting the key capabilities and their impact on management at different levels. So very briefly, technical skills did with how the product or service works and how to operate on it, work on it, uh, you know, make the thing go, so to speak. For example, if I worked at a cell phone store and I'm the manager, I need a certain level of technical expertise to know how to open up a cell phone and work on it, change batteries, you know, to basically do basic um, troubleshooting on phones if I'm the frontline store manager. If I'm the CEO of a cell phone company though, I may not need a whole lot of technical skills. You know, I don't need to know exactly how to operate on a cell phone. I've got front level managers that know how to do that. You know, if you think about it in military terms, 
your sniper on the field knows how to do sniping very well, the general might not be a sniper, but that sniper on the field has those technical skills because they've trained, they know how to do it. So conceptual skills are the ability to process and think. And frontline managers need those skills as well, but they're also engaged with not really um, going outside of the box and creating things as much as they are uh, as checking boxes and making sure things are getting done. So the higher you go up in management, the more conceptual skills you need. I had a student email me yesterday and they were asking about homework assignments. Nobody in this class, by the way. Um, or I wouldn't have brought it up. But, <laughs> but the question was about, can I just kind of copy and paste stuff from the book into homework? Or are you going to give me a lower grade if I do that? And I was like, well, anybody can copy and paste stuff from the book. That doesn't take any thinking to do that. But when you read something and interpret it yourself, you're using higher level reasoning. You're thinking. You're, you're using critical thinking skills. And you're also... Uh, demonstrating that you can process information you know you're demonstrating that uh, you're learning something and so there's a reason why we do that there's, there's you know we want you to be able to demonstrate that you can do that because when you get to the job do you want to be the person that's doing data entry where you take information and just move from here to there or do you want to be the person that's supervising those people that's doing the data entry and move up from there you know you got to think about where you want to be and the skills that you need to get there and so conceptual skills, the better you are at critical thinking, the higher you will go. And then human skills, everybody needs that at every level. You've got to be able to interact with people, to look people in the eye, to talk to people, to listen, to understand, to process, to be patient, to be empathetic. These are all things that you have to have at every level of management. And if you don't have it, if you don't have any of these skills, it's going to hurt you as you try to move up the management ladder because every level of those uh, is important. Probably the least important is technical because you can have people that can be technically trained to do things, but if you, can't, if you don't have that conceptual skills and the ability to interact with people, it's going to be a detriment to you. And so I'm not going to go through every piece of this because I've already talked about it uh, at length, but technical skills are defined as a learned capacity in just about any given field of work study or even play. Frontline managers in particular often need to use technical skills on a daily basis. They need to communicate up the chain of command while still speaking the language of the workers who are executing the hands-on aspect of the industry. Another example, um, I've mentioned Mouth Pickle a couple times. I went through that tour and the people that are there stuffing the pickle jars and labeling it and, and working on the machinery to process those pickles, those are your technical people. The person that's managing those people probably, more than likely, used to be a technical person and now they're managing technical people. But Bill Bryan, who's the president of Mount Pickle, he probably has a little bit of technical expertise, but that's not his area of expertise. His, his area is mission vision and understanding budgets, <coughs> keeping the payroll paid and uh, marketing, all these different aspects of the upper end of the company that <coughs> he's got to make sure that they're being done. And so... Uh, everybody has a role to play, and upper-level managers uh, have to make sure that all the pieces of the puzzle are working in harmony. And so uh, technical skills, mentioned that. Conceptual skills, the ability to formulate ideas or mental abstractions. <coughs> yeah, there's this thing in studying the way humans think. It's, uh, we go from concrete to abstract reasoning. 
Concrete means that if I see this remote right here as a child, a child, if I give them this remote, they see it, they can only see what they, they can only understand what they see. They see buttons, they see this thing made of plastic, they see the colors, but as an adult, we can see more than the remote. We can take this off. There's batteries inside that makes it work. We can take the thing apart and see the circuitry and start to understand that this is more than what we see on the outside. But for concrete people, they don't get it. They just see the remote. They, they know, hey, I push buttons, you know, things happen. But abstract, they can actually think, well, I can actually take this apart and make something else out of it. That's what abstraction is about. So <clears throat> conceptual thinking results in new ideas, unique strategies, and innovative solutions. Upper management spends most of the time with this mindset since they are largely tasked with strategic planning. Middle and frontline managers should understand as well <coughs> they communicate this critical information to subordinates. Um, you've got to know where, you, where your place is in the organization. You may go in wanting to be strategic and conceptual, but all they need you to do is to be a frontline person for now. Make sure we can get the job done, and then one day you might become one of the upper managements where you can be strategic and conceptual. It, yeah, it's hard to step into a place of employment <coughs> and jump into like mid-level management right out of the gate. You know, you've got to start and kind of earn your way up. So, And then human skills, the key to central success of any manager, a combination of social, interpersonal, and leadership skills. <coughs> Businesses often expect managers to lead or guide people rather than giving out instructions for every action or task. The ability to lead people is therefore a central component of the human skills. Good managers understand not only what they're trying to say, but also the broader context and implications of saying it. And so um, human skills, can't emphasize this enough, vitally important to being a good manager. <coughs> so let's talk about a couple of the main management theories. There's a lot, but the, the text kind of circles around a few. Um, Frederick Taylor was pretty much the, the godfather of management theory. Scientific management is a management theory that analyzes workflows <coughs> to improve economically economic efficiency, especially, especially labor productivity. This management theory, developed by Frederick Taylor, was popular in the 1880s and 1890s in the U.S. manufacturing industries. Sought to improve industrial efficiency by determining the amount of time it takes workers to complete a specific task. And so <coughs> what Taylor would do, he looked at all these processes going on in factories and said, there's a lot of waste occurring here. He said, as an example, um, I think Gilbreth did the, the brick study, but I'm just gonna use that as an example. He would watch a bricklayer lay a brick right here on the wall, and then the bricklayer would have to come all the way over here, pick up another brick from a pile, come back, putty it, lay another brick, and then do this you know, thousands of times a day. And right there are five steps I just took. What if you had, he developed a system, or they developed a system, that had the brick feeders would feed right to them so they could just do like this, lay bricks over and over again. <clears throat> and that saved motion, saved tons of productivity from having to take the time to go take those steps to grab that new brick. And so um, this scientific management or uh, became kind of a foundation for management theory is how can we look at production from the sum of its parts and work on reducing waste. So the Gilbreths, 
When Taylor was conducting his time studies, Frank and Lillian Gilbreth were com- um, completing their own work in motion studies to further uh, scientific management. <clears throat> the Gilbreth name may be familiar to anyone who's read the book, Cheaper by the Dozen, a biographical novel about the Gilbreth family. There are 12 children, and the often humorous attempts of the Gilbreth to apply their efficiency methods in their own household made use of the scientific insights to develop a study method based on the analysis of work motion, consisting in part of filming the details of the workers' activities while recording the time it took to complete those activities. And so, um, skipping down to Taylor studies versus Gilbreth, Taylor focused on reducing process time. Gilbreth tried to make overall process more efficient by reducing the motions involved. Gilbreth was more concerned with worker welfare than the Taylor studies. <clears throat> so I know I've, I've looked at some video, and if we have time, I'll show you some brief video on the Gilbert studies where they actually observe bricklayers, like I just mentioned, and they actually implement ways to reduce that motion, make it more tighter, compact, save saves time, saves money. All right, and then we get to Henry Fail. Fail saw the need to study ways managers could systemize their management practices used the minds for the basis of his studies, developed what is now regarded as the foundation of modern management theory through 14 principles of management. He saw that work could be managed more efficiently and smoothly by supporting the workers doing the tasks. Yeah, um, you can actually get a lot out of people by supporting and believing in them, believe it or not. He proposed that if managers could instill a sense of team spirit and encourage employees to contribute their own ideas, the problem of high turnover and instability in the workforce might be solved. Other issues he addressed, structure of an organization and chain of command. Um, So I mentioned at the beginning of class, good managers and bad managers. One of the reasons I believe bad managers are bad, this is not always true, is lack of education. So what happens often is somebody will go work at a job, entry level, they work their way up to management. Yes, I'm a manager. They could have been the best uh, frontline worker the company had or the longest tenured. And so they kind of naturally, you know, grad- graduate to management. And so now you got a management role. They've never been a manager, but all of a sudden they're a manager. And it's a whole different ballgame now. It's not about my individual productivity. It's about the productivity of everyone. And so they're often faced with this dilemma of how do I manage? You know, I don't know how to manage. I know like how my manager treated me and that's all I have to go on. And so there's an there's a information and education gap. Some companies try to educate their managers on how to manage, but there still, I believe, is a large gap there. And so having education about it, learning about it, uh, and taking an active effort to learn more about management, such an important thing, and I think we need more of that. And so let's talk about the management process. Planning. Uh, When managers begin to plan, they need to plan based on something, an idea, an opportunity, or a dream. The company vision and mission statements creates the foundation for planning by summarizing a company's business strategy in the form that can be communicated and easily understood by its stakeholders. Um, The key planning tool used is a SWOT analysis. Have we discussed SWOT in here before? S-W-O-T? I know we have my other class. I just wanted to... Didn't know if we talked about it over here. This is kind of briefly what a SWOT is. Um, There's a couple ways you can draw it, but I use a quadrant like this, and I'll just take a SWOT in each corner of this quadrant, and then I'll put a one, two, three, 
Just this is a basic uh, SWAT. And what SWAT stands for, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And so every company, every organization, every individual has internal strengths and weaknesses and external uh, opportunities and threats. Every, everything, every, every person, every company, every organization. And so as an example, let's take a company that everybody knows. What's a company everybody knows? How about McDonald's? Pretty easy, right? <coughs> I, I may get too long-winded if we do that. So, how about McDonald's? So, what what makes McDonald's strong? It's cheap, right? Uh, not right now, okay. Well, I mean, they're they're semi cheap, but what what else makes McDonald's strong? Nothing. So, McDonald's is weaker than I thought, huh? And they're kids. Yeah. Yeah, they're known. I put kids under there. And I'm going to put locations. They're everywhere. So what makes McDonald's weak? Customer service. See, it's not What else makes them weak? I think, I don't think the food's very good. Yeah. I think the food is just, ugh. I feel gross eating it. <laughs> and so, so what's the opportunity for McDonald's? What do you guys think? If you, if you were advising McDonald's today, here's your opportunity. Here's where you can make a difference. For me, I would cut back on the menu. I think they got too much on the menu. Too many things they're trying to focus on. They need to refine the menu. What else? I think they need even be more healthy. Don't just say it. Really, really focus on fresh, good, healthy stuff. It can be done. It can be done. There's 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 food businesses that sell basic like Whole Foods that are not processed as much or at all. And so, yeah, healthier or healthy-ish. Yeah, they need to. They really they try to do that, but I think there's they fallen way short on what they said they wanted to do. So what else? So yeah, better. So better CS. So what's a threat to them? Some what, what threats? Does McDonald's have? I think uh, one of them is the culture. I think at some point it's already started, but there's going to be. I hope there's a shift away from fast food. Like the culture says, we're done. We're not eating processed food. We want whole, fresh, good quality, clean food. Um, I think there's going to be a demand, a growing demand. Like if you're getting in the restaurant space and you're going to do. That type of menu, I think that's there's, some, there's an opportunity there. What else is a threat? Other threats. I guess competition. Anything else? Well, we'll just go with that. So this is a basic SWOT, and you can actually go in and put subcategories under each one of these, and this would help you identify kind of where your focus needs to be. And so one thing that showed up on both of these is CS, customer service. So um, that's the like internal and external weakness this company has. Like, especially we bring up Chick-fil-A all the time, but when we could, if, if, imagine what it would do to McDonald's sales if, Chick, if they could have the Chick-fil-A customer service. It'd be amazing for them. So um, there's a couple different types of plans. There's a strategic plan. 
big picture, where are we now? Where do we want to be and how do we get there? I was listening to a podcast this morning and they were talking about a thing that I listened to called The Strangest Secret. It's by Earl Nightingale. It's, it's pretty old now. It's like 70 years old. But it's on YouTube. And he talks about basically that where you are in life is where you want to be. Think about that for a second. Where you are in life is where you want to be. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. So if you want to be somewhere else, you need to get up and go somewhere else. And that's pretty powerful if you think about it. You know, He says people expect to sit down in front of a fireplace, not put any wood in it for it to warm them or for them to be provided heat. they got to put the wood in. they got to do the work to get the heat from the fireplace. A lot of cool ideas from that, pod, from that uh, YouTube video. It's an it's a audio file on YouTube, so check it out. Earl Nightingale, Strangest Secret, I can email it to you. But yeah, it's called The Strangest Secret. Um, I'll email it to you guys. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's worth listening to. I'll send it out. Um, my dad sat, sat me down like two years ago and said, you got to listen to this. I thought, no, I don't want to listen to it. I'm busy. So, but I listened to it. They listened to it again. I've probably heard it 10 times. Really powerful. And I've shared it with people. They're like, man, this is good stuff. It's really, you know, you really have to put in the work to get somewhere. You can't expect results without the effort. So, um, so strategic plans are the big ideas. Tactical plan. What is to be done? Who's going to do it? And how is it going to be done? This is more specific. We know what we want to do, but exactly what do we got to do? So imagine a strategic plan for you guys. I want to get a degree. Well, tactical plan is what classes do I need to register for and complete this semester to get me on that path to getting the degree? That's tactical. And then operational is the week-to-week, the day-to-day. What do I got to do today to do this semester to get that degree? You know, you got to show up to class. You got to do the homework, right? Those are the operational plans, the things that make it work day to day, week to week, month to month. And then before you know it, you get to go attainment. And then we have contingency plans. These are unforeseen things that pop up. You know, tried to come to class today, flat tire, tried to turn in the homework, Moodle jack, jacks you up. So we got to have a contingency plan for that. Things do happen. Contingency plans have a place in management. And so there's a couple of different ways that companies are organized. Once a plan has been created, a manager can begin to organize. Organizing involves assessing tasks, grouping tasks um, into departments, delegating authority, and allocating resources across the organization. During the organizing process, managers coordinate employees, resources, policies, and procedures to facilitate the goals identified in the plan. So we have a couple of different ways. You can have a divisional structure, which is where you have each organizational function has its own division. Like this plan requires accounting, it requires marketing, it requires operations, it requires, um, I don't know, like, what's another division? I guess financing, yeah, you gotta have financing. And so product, uh, product departmentalization, the various activities are related to the product or service or under the authority of one manager, like a luxury sedans is the example they give. And you can have geographic departmentalization, which is different aspects are done in different areas around the uh, area, country, world, wherever it may be. Functional structure, an organization is divided into smaller groups by area of specialty. And this is uh, basically, we keep the business instructors in the business area in this building. The IT people are upstairs. Um, the nursing instructors are in the building, right perpendicular or diagonally to us. And then down here we have the welding and mechanics. 
So that's a functional division. And then if you get to the front of campus, you get the administration, you get financial aid. All these different areas are divided up based on function. It just makes it easier to, to work with. And then this last structure is the matrix structure, which basically is a free form individual group by two or different operational perspectives, allows for a lot more flexibility, but a, an added level of complexity. Sometimes like they may want, uh, due to just size, they may have us work very closely with another department or two, just based on our areas. Like if you go over to Azalea Building, if you go up to the third floor offices, you'll find people from all different disciplines in that area. There'll be psychology instructors, there'll be literature, there'll be science, and it's just because of logistics and space as to how they're, but they all are under the humanities banner, but various different disciplines that you find there. And so we're now at the uh, leading aspects. A couple different types of leadership styles. These are, um, I guess, the kind of broad leadership styles. Leaders are people who know how to achieve goals and inspire people along the way. In a business setting, leadership also means being able to share a clear vision of where the company is headed while providing the knowledge, information, and methods needed to get there. Different approaches to management. And so you do have some different ways to lead. There's an authoritarian, autocratic. So an autocratic management style, decision-making power, is concentrated in the manager. Thinking, gentlemen, I hop, right? I mean, to me, that kind of... I, that may not be the appropriate label, but somebody is very, I'm running this, that feels very autocratic authoritarian. Autocratic managers don't entertain any suggestions or consider initiatives from subordinates. This style of management is effective for quick decision making, but is generally not successful in fostering employee engagement or maintaining worker satisfaction. When do managers tend to use this style? Crisis situation or low-skilled workers? Yeah, this is... Uh, the, so when you're in a crisis, the manager takes over. Boom, I'm running this. Uh, I know there's probably not many Star Trek fans in the room. Maybe one. Do you like a little Star Trek, maybe? No. So you don't have to be a fan to know that when the captain is on the ship, everybody's running their department. But then when the Klingons attack, the captain's on the bridge running it, right? He's calling the shots. That's a crisis situation. Um, if you've got a situation where you've got low-skilled workers... You have to really micromanage sometimes and be on top of them to make sure they're being productive and understanding, you know, they're doing what needs to be done. So, you know, no disrespect at all to anybody who works in a restaurant. I've done it for many years of my life. But that is classified as low-skill work, you know. You come in, you learn how to wait tables, boom, you're a waitress or waiter. Um, I did that for many years. No disrespect to those people at all. It's hard work. Um, but... I can see why that type of management style is appropriate in restaurants because you do run into people in restaurants that work in restaurants that have high turnover, that are not there to do a good job, they're there just to get a paycheck. And restaurants tend to have a lot of turnover where people come in, they are not very productive, and then they get booted or they quit. And so I can see why an autocratic authoritarian management style might be appropriate, although not as desirable from an employee standpoint. A laissez-faire free reign manager sometimes describes as a hands-off management because the manager delegates the task to the followers while providing little or no direction. A laissez-faire manager withdraws too much. If, if you do withdraw too much, it can sometimes result in a lack of productivity, cohesion, and satisfaction. Under this type of management, subordinates are given a hands-free 
or sorry, given a hand, hand free or free hand, I'm sorry, a little dyslexic this morning, in deciding their own policies and methods. Window managers uh, employ this approach. Workers are independent or self-motivated and workers are creative and, or innovative. My uncle's a graphic designer. He works in the art department at a t-shirt manufacturing company in Fayetteville. And he's got a manager, but the manager really never gives him any like flack at all or gives him any trouble. I mean, he's been there for over 20 years and he pretty much is manages himself. I mean, as long as he gets his job done. Um, and that's because he is self-motivated. They know he's gonna show up. They know he's gonna do a good job and they leave him alone. Um, I've been here, this is my fifth year. My manager doesn't really bother me. Bother me. I mean, she knows I'm gonna be here. I'm gonna do a good job, I hope. And they really don't give me any trouble, you know, or I don't give them any trouble. We have an understanding. I'm here to do a good job. You're here to support me. Let's do it, so. Um, <clears throat> participative or democratic. The manager shares the decision-making authority with the group members. What do you guys think we should do? That's a good, that's a good approach. This approach values individual interest and perspective while also contributing to team cohesion. I saw an interesting thing about a year ago. It was a, um, a co-op business where if you came to work there, you actually were a part owner in the business now. And you had a vote as to what the business did and how they proceeded. And when you had a board meeting, everybody in the business came together that was from the very new, newly person brought in all the way up to the founders, and everybody had a stake in the ownership and success or failure of the company. Really cool concept. Um, participant management can help employees feel more invested in decisions, outcomes, or the choices they've made because they have a say in them. There's this big connection to autonomy or choice and satisfaction. The more choices people, or the more choice and control people feel like they have over their destiny, the more satisfaction they ultimately have. Uh, when is this appropriate, managerial choice? Organization enters a transitional period, um, a merger, expansion, product addition, or closing a facility, or new or unexpected challenges. That can be good. So, some types of leaders. We have transformational, transactional, and narcissistic. A transformational works with subordinates to identify needed change, creates and share an inspiring vision and brings about change, together with committed members of a group, a transactional leader, also known as a managerial leader, focuses on supervision, organization, and performance. And then you have this narcissistic leader, interested only in themselves, at the expense of others, such as employees or group members. Maybe um, it may be healthy or destructive. Narcissist leader, especially ones with destructive narcissism, is driven by an unyielding arrogance, self-absorption and a personal egotistic need for power and admiration. Yeah, um, what's that? A good example of a semi-narcissistic, semi-destructive leader is Michael Scott from The Office. You know, he, I love The Office. So anybody Office fans? He says, I don't have to be liked for everybody, liked by everybody, but I need to be liked by everybody. You heard him say that? So yeah, that's, he just has this narcissism. All right. This last piece is on controlling, and I'll be very brief because we've got like five minutes. But the controlling aspect is, I don't like this word controlling to begin with, but it has to do with maintaining the direction you want to go. Once you've got a plan, you put it into play, you've got to control that process to make sure it goes to fruition. It's not enough to have a plan. Plans, you know, are a dime a dozen. Everybody can have a plan. Uh, I love the quote, everybody's got a plan until you get hit. It's a boxer quote. Yeah, because you're going to get hit in business. 
uh, when you throw your plan out there and you get started, things are going to come your way that you're not expecting. It's going to take you yeah, off balance. Um, for, those, for those of you that were there at the Patricia Delamont interview, she talks about her plans and how some of them didn't work out. She had to kind of stick and move with that. So controlling is about maintaining, try to maintain as much control over that plan as you can and dealing with those contingencies that pop up. So uh, operational objectives should be smart. So you should have these objectives that are specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound or constrained. Um, you should be able to measure performance. A lot of businesses just measure sales. Say, okay, we had a good sales day or a good revenue day. That's our performance metric, but it's more than that. And so you should be able to have some performance me metrics that you can use to measure your company's performance. Several different things you can do. Uh, analyzing performance, it's not enough to be able to measure, but you should be able to interpret and understand what that performance is. I mean, like, um, I'm sure you've seen it. Has anybody ever got done something, they got an email, will you rate this transaction? Or will you hang on the line for a minute to give us a survey feedback? Or will you fill out an instructor evaluation? Those types of things. Those are all, all part of performance metrics. Companies love that data. They, they absolutely love it because um, it, it allows for them to get a cleaner uh, understanding of, uh, or clearer understanding of real data and what's actually happening. And so when you give feedback on somebody's performance, you're one of dozens if not hundreds or more of people that are weighing in and accurately depicting that seller or that, that person's performance. And then corrective action, if something's not working out, if you've got a call center with 300 employees, you're the manager, and you're getting, getting these feedbacks from people that are been calling in, and you find out that Sally, her performance has gone from a 4.73 to a 3.72, oh my God, you gotta step in, right? I'm, I'm being facetious, but that's the kind of stuff they pay attention to. They'll bring her into the office and say, hey, your performance metric has dropped like 20% in the past quarter. What's up? You know, there's, there's a reason why they have those. And so corrective action is something that's, that's sometimes needed. Accurately identify the problem, determine a method of corrective action, schedule review and evaluation and solution. So yeah, it's easier to correct action with employees sometimes than it is to fire them to find a replacement. So give them a chance to correct that action and then uh, evaluate if the action was corrected, okay? Questions, comments, ideas? All right, before we leave, let me check roll real quick.